Well, let me begin with a question for all of us today. If you're at home, you can type your answer in on the chat. And if you're in the room, I'm actually going to have you turn to your neighbor for about 20 seconds and answer this question. What is your favorite spy movie of all time? Take a minute. All right, that was good. We'll do some reporting now. If you are in the room, can a few of you just shout out what you said? Spy Kids, I heard that. James Bond? Who said James Bond? I figured a lot of people would, one of the James Bonds. Okay. My favorite of all time is the original Mission Impossible. Did anybody say the original Mission Impossible? I'm not exactly sure why. It might simply be the theme song, which is just uh, simply fantastic. One thing that I also like, just as much as good spy movies, is actually real spy stories. I heard a great spy story recently. This comes from a book by Malcolm Gladwell, Talking with Strangers, and he tells the story about a spy with the codename Mountain Climber, which is a great codename for a spy. And the mountain climber is the, the greatest spy of his generation. And so he, he was, uh, back in the late 80s, he was the guy that everybody was talking about. He was exceptional at his job. He actually developed quite a reputation among many countries as being the greatest spy in the world. He was meticulous when he would don someone else's identity. He never got caught. Uh, he was loyal, loyal to a T. Uh, there's one story where the Soviets came and, and offered him this big briefcase full of millions of dollars if he would just give them some secrets to their government. He said, no, I, I'm sorry, I just can't do that. This guy was so good that the KGB actually had a course named after him, as in, hey, young spies, learn to be like the mountain climber. Uh, the mountain climber worked all over the world. He worked a lot in Europe. He worked for quite a uh, number of years in Cuba. Well, I want to tell you about the strangest conversation that the mountain climber ever had. So there was one day when the uh, uh, embassy in, the, in the Czechoslovakia called the mountain climber and says, we've got to fly you in immediately. So they flew the mountain climber into their embassy. And apparently this, this Cuban spy named Florentino had just walked into the embassy and said, I would like to defect I want to give all my secrets to the American government, but there's only one person I will share my secrets with, the mountain climber. And so they flew the mountain climber in, and there was this meeting between mountain climber Florentino. Florentino actually gives mountain climber a big hug. He's a big fan, says, you're my hero, I've, I've modeled my spy life after you, but there's some things I have to tell you. So Florentino says, do you remember such and such agent that you used to talk to when you were in Cuba and you used to meet with him at this location and he gave you this intel? And the mountain climber says, well, yeah, of course I remember that guy. And Florentino says, well, you're not going to believe this, but he was actually working for us. He was a double agent for Fidel Castro. And mountain climber says, no, 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 you, you can't be serious. And then Florentino said, no, I, I, I'm just getting started here. Do you remember so-and-so, that one agent that you met at such-and-such such place, and he gave you this intel and this information? Mountain Climber said, yeah, I remember him. Florentino said, well, he was a double agent as well, working for Fidel Castro. They sat there for two and a half hours, and no joke, Florentino named 48 double agents that had been working for Castro, 
and the mountain climber had no clue. And so Malcolm Gladwell, when he tells the story in his book, his main point is that anybody can be deceived. And I mean anybody. Normally we think that the people that are capable of deception would be the uneducated or the gullible or the weak-minded people or the people that actually answer their robocalls and actually think that these vacations that these bogus companies are offering are real and they give their credit card number out to these companies. That's the people we think are easily deceived. But if the mountain climber, the greatest spy arguably in U.S. history, if he can be deceived, well then the truth is any of us can be deceived. And as Christians, the stakes for us are actually quite a bit higher than spy and espionage in the government. Scripture tells us that we have an enemy and he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to be devoured. And even if you've been a Christian a really, really, really long time, it's still pretty easy to get deceived. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he predicted that we would come to times where a lot of people would be deceived. So, for example, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says this, The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. This is a prediction of deception. Paul's saying there is a day coming when, when people will no longer want to hear what is valid. They'll simply want to hear what's validating. Just tell me I'm right. Just tell me what I think is true, and that's what I want to hear. He's predicting that that day will come, and I believe that that day is here. Uh, Paul also says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So again, he's saying, like, get ready for it. Like, th this day is coming when we will be deceived. And again, this can happen to anybody. So for Christians, sometimes we are deceived by the love of money. Uh, sometimes we are deceived by the illusion of control. Sometimes we're deceived by the idol of the perfect family. Sometimes we're deceived by a secret sin. But the crazy thing is, usually when we are deceived, just like the mountain climber, we're the last ones to know that it's actually happening. And so that's why I'm starting this series today. It's a four-week series. It's called Counterintelligence. Because just, just like a good spy, we as Christians, we need, we need to know the tactics of the enemy. In fact, the the, the definition on the military, uh, military website for counterintelligence is this. To find out what foreign intelligence organizations are planning to better defeat their aims. So a good spy is going to learn the tactics of, of the enemy. And so for a few weeks we're going to do the same in a study. And one, one reason I'm excited about this study is because it's all coming from the same book. In the book of First Timothy, Paul talks a lot about this. In fact, three or four times over the course of the book, he says, Timothy, you've got to watch out. Watch out for this one. Do not be deceived by this form of teaching. So this whole study in the next few weeks is all going to come from the book of 1 Timothy. So we'll hop into the first section here. We're actually going to start in chapter 4. And Paul writes these words. He says, 
they, as in this group of false teachers, they forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So apparently back in the day, there's a group of people who's, who's telling other Christians, hey, do not eat those foods. If you eat those foods, you're dishonoring God. And they also said things like this, don't get married. It, it's sinful. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, read, when I read a text like that, I actually get really excited. I'm like, yes, like, <laughs> I do not have a problem with this because I like food and I don't have any problem with marriage. And so it just feels like, okay, this is one that I don't really have to apply this to my life. But we do because this goes quite a bit deeper than just not eating food and then, you know, somebody denouncing marriage. This, this actually speaks to a, a pretty insidious lie that... Uh, you might have believed in your life without realizing it. So what this is pointing to is the, it's a group of people that would say, we think the creator God is great, but we just don't want anything to do with his creation. So that there is this, I would say this is a tactic from the enemy to adopt a mindset that says, I want creator without creation. Now, Again, you might think, well, Phil, that doesn't seem like it applies to me. I don't think that I really do that. But let's, let's talk about this for a minute. So this, this kind of teaching back then went something like this. There's a good God in the world, and we need to worship Him. But the earth, not good. The earth is not something good created by God. The earth is something that we should resist. And, and pleasure is something we should definitely resist because, because pleasure is bad. And this is what this group of teachers would have taught back then. Now, again, you might not think this applies to you, but I'm going to give you two very specific areas of life that I, I think this particular tactic from the enemy shows up. And what I would encourage you to do is I'm just going to give you two, but I actually think there's a lot more. And I would encourage you in your personal time and with your small group or Bible class or family to keep exploring other ways that this manifests in the world. But one way that this philosophy of creator without creation manifests for a lot of us today is through shame. And so I'll specifically mention that. So uh, over my uh, 15 years of ministry, I've met with a lot of uh, couples, some engaged, some married, but I've talked to a lot, a lot of couples. And one thing that is said to me way more often than the average person would think is this. Someone says, Phil, I feel a lot of shame when it comes to sex. Maybe the engaged couple saying, we feel shame with what is about to happen when we get married. Or a married couple might say, it's, it's very hard for us because we feel shame during this part of our relationship. Now, now why, why exactly are they saying this? Well, sometimes they say, well, Phil, I feel the shame because of things I've seen. Uh, sometimes they say, well, Phil, I feel the shame because of things I've done. Uh, sometimes they say, Phil, I feel the shame because my whole life I've been taught this is bad. And so how can I enjoy something that I've been taught was wrong. And so usually if this comes up when I'm, when I'm with a couple, I'll say something like this. I say, sex is something that God created. Like it comes from the mind of God. If you go back to Genesis 1 as God's making the world and everything's good. Sex is part of that world. First thing God tells people to do is to be fruitful and, and multiply. So in itself, it's actually really, really good. The reason we feel uh, shame about it is, be, is not because of God. It's because our world, our culture, for many, many years has perverted it and has distorted it. 
And so now the version that we receive from the world is not the version that God intended to give us. And so what I try to tell, tell couples is that it really is good. It comes from the mind of God. You might think about it this way. Here in a, next week, you're doing whatever you're going to do for Thanksgiving. Obviously, all, all of our plans are pretty different. But I want you to think about eating a really, really good piece of pie. It's, 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 it's the pecan pie, and you take the first bite, and you close your eyes, and you just relish how good it tastes in your mouth. You have this moment of silence where you just, you just celebrate the richness of this wonderful dessert. Now, in that moment, why is it so good? Well, it's really two reasons. One is it tastes really good, but two, you know it comes from the mind of someone that wanted you to enjoy it, and so therefore you enjoy it. Sex is the same way. It comes from the mind of God. And the reason that we get off on this one or we feel shame on this one is because we have started using it in a way that our God did not design for it to be used. See, not only did God give us the gift of sex, He also said, hey, here's the place where you should use the gift. And it's very clear in Scripture. Marriage. And so what's happened for many, many, many years is that our word, world, our, our culture, certain movements, certain groups of people have said, you know what, we should, we should try this in other places at other times. Well, yeah, then it gets distorted, and that's where the, that's where the shame comes in. You know, the, the iPhone is not a good hockey puck, and sex is not great when it's seen as just a fling. But when it's used in the way of its designer, it's, it's, it's great. So that, that's, that's one way that this philosophy of, of creation without creator gets manifested in our world today is, is, is through shame. Here's a totally different way. And again, I'm all over the map in this sermon today, but here's a totally different uh, way that this is revealed, this particular tactic is revealed in our life. Waste. Because if you care about the creator God, but you don't care about creation, then you're not going to take care of creation. And this is actually a really, really big deal because when you go to the Bible, there's, there's this connection between the people of God and the planet of God all throughout the Bible. So for example, in the Old Testament, one of the big promises from God to Israel is, hey, if you will obey my laws, guess what, guess what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you land. Land is one of the central promises in the entire Old Testament, and the people are always trying to get it. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. There's always this connection between people and land. You even go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Here's what God says to Adam and Eve. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it and take care of it. It's one of the first things he ever told people is take care of this world that I have made for you. Like, like when people do what we are called to do and we live as obedient creatures under the authority of God Almighty, then not only do we receive this blessing of, of having a relationship with the creator of the universe, but the planet itself benefits from good stewardship of humanity. And so one way that the enemy deceives us is by getting us to believe this lie that, well, yeah, God's great, but the world's going to burn up anyway, so it doesn't really matter. People are important. Souls are important. God is important. But creation, eh, planet, take it or leave it. That is a lie from the enemy, which manifests itself through waste. So this picture you're going to see on the screen, this is a picture of our landfills in our country in the year 1911. And the second 
picture you see is the landfills we have in our country in the year 2020. Now, the reason there's so many more dots over the course of about 100 years is because Americans use or, or we, we, uh, we waste 4.5 pounds of garbage a day. That's how much we produce, 4.5 pounds of garbage, in comparison to the rest of the world, which produces 1.6 pounds of garbage a day. And so this is why you, you can see this all over. You can Google this. This is why there are massive piles of trash in the oceans. It's because we produce this much waste. Now, when we hear lessons about the planet, you see things about the planet, we, most of us often our brain goes to, well, this is just a political thing. But what I'm telling you today, not as a politician, but as a preacher, is that it's actually a biblical thing. God, God told us in Scripture to take care of His creation. And so when we turn a blind eye to it and say, ah, it doesn't really matter. God's important, but not necessarily creation. When we turn a blind eye to creation, that's exactly what these false teachers are doing in 1 Timothy chapter 4. When they say, yeah, food, you don't want to eat that. Yeah, marriage, you don't want to get married. They're turning a blind eye to the created world. And Paul's saying, uh-uh. That is a lie from the enemy. God called this world good, and we have a responsibility to take care of it. So th those are two, uh, two ways that this first error reveals itself in the world. When we take creator, but we take out creation. Now, I want to I flip it for a minute here, because there's a, total, uh, there's a whole different set of, I, I would, I guess, say, errors or really unhealthy roads that we can go down when we do the opposite. And the opposite of taking creation without, uh, or taking creator without creation is to accept creation without creator. So let's, let's just take God out of the picture. And so it's, a really, it's really interesting what happens when we choose this particular route. And so this, this is the group of people that would say, I believe what I see. And the material world is real, and as long as I can see it, and I can study it, and I can analyze it, I I'll believe that those things are real. But this idea that there's a being behind it, that there's this intelligent designer behind it, no. I, I can't do that. That's too much of a jump. I'm just going to believe what I see. And there's more and more people starting to believe this particular philosophy. You call it atheism, you call it agnosticism, but you, either yourself or, or you know plenty of people which are starting to take steps towards this trajectory of, of leaving faith and embracing this worldview where there is no creator. Now this brings a total different set of, of issues, of tactics from the enemy. And so the first one is what I would call disenchantment. And what I mean by that is that when we make this journey, we go from this place of I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, and then we start to have doubts and we turn away from that. One thing that we often forget is that when we take a step away from one thing, we're really taking a step towards something else. And this other way of life without a God, when you really think about it, it actually is a pretty depressing form of life. Because here's the storyline for a worldview without a creator. You are a piece of carbon. That's all you are. You're just biology and chemistry governed by the laws of physics. You really have no purpose. You have no meaning. Any purpose or meaning that you think you have doesn't come from anything outside yourself. You've just created it in your mind. And you're going to exist for about 80 years. Then you're going to go back to the earth and become dust. That's your story. 
And so the question is, even for those of you that might have doubts, maybe something happened to you and you can't explain it. Maybe, maybe you wrestle with how God could allow suffering or whatever your big faith question is. But my question for you would be, if you really embrace that worldview, then all you are is a piece of carbon. And do you really want to live out that story? If you choose creation without creator, that's the story that you get. Disenchantment. Now, I'll give you a, a second tragic road that, that this philosophy can, can lead to. Not just disenchantment, but depravity. So, Romans 1 is a fascinating passage. A lot of people have studied it for a long time. And Paul lists a lot of sins in Romans chapter 1. And it's really like negative. It's kind of depressing. I want to read you this list, and then I want to tell you why I think he wrote the list. Here's the list. All of these come from Romans 1. Wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slander, arrogance, disobedience to parents, exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. So really happy list there. So the, the whole chapter is like that. Paul is just listing all of these sins. And a lot of people have read Romans 1 and interpreted this as a, well, Paul is just accusing all of us of being horrible, sinful people. He's trying to make us all feel really, really bad about life. I don't think that's why he put this in Romans 1. Romans 1 is Paul's way of trying to explain why there's so much evil in the world. And so yes, there's this massive list of sins, but the main idea from Romans 1 is that Paul's pointing towards their source. And the source is found in verse 25, where he writes this. They, as in the people that practice all these sinful things, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. That's the root. When you look at any evil in your own life or you look at the world and you see evil going on in the world and you wonder why is that there, if you trace it back to its source, it, the source is when people start to worship created things rather than creator, that's why it's all there. That's the source of all this. And this is a really intriguing one because a lot of people would say, well, well, if I just take God out of the picture, my life's going to get a lot better. Don't have to go to church, don't have to read the Bible, don't have to follow all these rules. Like I can be liberated from this really oppressive form of religious life that's really leading to all the bad things happening into the world anyways. Or that's what the average person walking away from faith would like to tell themselves. But what they don't realize is that when you take God out of the center of your heart, something else always goes into place. And maybe it's your need for approval, or maybe it's your need for recognition, or maybe it's power, or sex, or money, or fame. But when you take God out of the center, it's not a void. It's not neutral. Something goes in its place. And that non-divine entity becomes the center of your life. And then what happens is you spend all this energy you have, this, like you have this desire in your heart, this infinite desire for meaning and satisfaction, and you try to satisfy an infinite desire with a finite thing. And that's why so many people are left just completely unsatisfied. Now, let's say approval is at the center of your life. You might get a little bit of it. Like you might wake up one day and maybe someone likes you or you get a bunch of likes on Facebook or whatever. Or maybe it's power or fame and you get the raise or you get the money and you feel that temporary satisfaction. And then you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you're still unsatisfied. 
It's because you've taken God out of your heart and you've replaced him with something finite and something finite can never satisfy an infinite desire. And so when you choose creation without creator, it leads to this depravity. Nothing, nothing can satisfy you when you choose this route. Now, I want to end with what I think is the proper relationship between these two. Obviously, the whole message has been about what's the relationship between creator and creation. And the enemy, when we're talking about enemy tactics, he wants you to either A, really worship and love creator God, but not really care about creation, which leads to shame and waste. Or he wants you to really care about creation, but not really care about the creator, which leads to disenchantment and depravity. But here's what I, I would argue that Paul really thinks the healthiest view of all this is. It's creator in creation. So about a month ago or so, I was in Kansas with my in-laws, and we were having a Bible study with my kids, and we were talking about that verse that says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And so I was talking about what a yoke is. Well, Mary's mother went upstairs, and she brought down this, this really interesting figure. It was two wooden cows with a yoke between them. And she handed it to us, and we all looked at it and, and, and oohed and awed over it. And she said, this is from my grandfather. My grandfather made this by hand. And it was exquisite craftsmanship. It was this uh, light-colored wood, and it was very, very intricate in detail. And you could tell that this guy had spent a lot of time fashioning this by hand. And what was really interesting is that even though I've never met this guy, I felt like I knew him, or at least part of him. I kind of knew his personality and his intentionality through what he had made. Creation is the handiwork of God Almighty. And so the best way to think about this is that the earth is God's playground. It's God's canvas. And so when you look at it from that vantage point, then creation screams the glory of God, and we can actually get to know our God better simply by looking at the world that he made. In fact, I want to read you just three or four or five scriptures that you've, you probably know these scriptures. But when you read them all together, at least for me, it has this profound effect of unlocking this world around me. So I want you to just take a deep breath, and I'm going to read you just back to back to back some of the greatest passages in the Bible about creator and creation. This one from Job 12, I bet a lot of you have not read in a while. It's a fantastic passage. Ask the animals. They'll teach you. Or the birds in the sky, they will tell you. Or speak to the earth. It will teach you. Or let the fish of the sea inform you. In his hand is the life of every creature and breath of all mankind. Romans 1, 20, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. John 1, 3, through Him, as in through Jesus, all things were made. Colossians 1, 16, all things have been created through Him, through Jesus, and for Him, for Jesus. In Him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Psalm 98, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. God is in every atom of the universe, and we get so distracted that we just miss out on his handiwork all 
around us. Imagine the wonder and the joy that could come into your life if you could start seeing this world truly as the handiwork of God. If I can sense the presence of a carpenter in this wooden bowl that my mother-in-law showed me, don't you think we could sense the presence of our wonderful Creator through the universe in which we inhabit. His fingerprints are all over it. I I read a book two or three years ago by Richard Rohr, and he had this really fascinating line. He said, creation in a sense is kind of like the first incarnation. Now obviously, biblically speaking, the the real incarnation is Jesus coming into the world in, in the flesh as a baby. But you can view creation as the first time God infuses His presence and His will and His peace in the world. Not in a a pantheistic way, as in we should worship the universe, but in a way that God is saying, this is my handiwork. This is what I made. And you can get to know me if you just observe creation. God wants you to know Him through what He made. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. C.S. Lewis said it very simply. He said, every sun ray leads back to the sun. And so you know when you see the sky and, and the clouds are at that certain height and the, the rays of sun just burst through them and you, you can actually see the lines? Well, if you trace the ray back through the clouds and then through 93 million miles in space, it all goes back to the sun. And so when you look at your world and you look at the people around you and you look at the beautiful earth around you, every sun ray, if you trace it backwards, leads back to the sun. It leads back to God. And so really that's your homework this week is trace the sun rays back to the sun. Get to know your creator better this week through his creation. Just a few days ago, I'm teaching the 11th graders for their Wednesday night huddles. And we were sitting around a campfire and it's you know, pitch black because it gets pitch black like at two o'clock in the afternoon now, but it's in the evening and we're, we're sitting around. There's a fire in the middle. We're all pretty cold. And I asked this group of juniors in high school, I said, how is that fire like your faith? And they just start saying great stuff. You know, it, it gives me warmth when I'm cold or it's, it's a light in the darkness. Uh, I love what uh, somebody said, when you stir the coals, it makes the flame get brighter. But it was a really sweet moment where we could just talk about how do we see God through something that he made, then what I'm saying is that you can do that all the time. Like, you you can see God anywhere if you actually have the eyes to see him. And so that's my challenge for you this week, is simply let the sun rays lead back to the sun. Because one day, God has promised new creation, where he does remake this world a place where there is no evil and there's no pain and there's no suffering. And that's the world that you and I get to experience with Him forever. That's the promise of Scripture. And so we're about to sing a a, a beautiful song about God's creation. And if you need us to pray for you, we'd love to do that. If you want to give your life to Christ to be part of this amazing story, I'd love you to come tell me about that as well. Let's stand and sing.